forum. It's time to get ready to vote again. The Kayak ADA launch in Anderson County brings even more accessible outdoor activities to our citizens. Bridge on US 29 reopens and a lot more on the Anderson Observer podcast. News from people you trust for March 17th, 2017 and happy St. Patrick's Day to you. Whether you're sporting green or orange, we hope you're enjoying the day. It has been another great week in Anderson, everybody, and winter did poke us one more time there. Pretty good. Uh, looks like it may have killed all our peaches. We'll see. Uh, man, farming is still the, one of the hardest things in the world to do. Uh, I do think winter's revenge was uh, taking revenge on us for springing our clocks forward one hour on Sunday, but who really knows? Boy, you heard more people this week seeing, talking about legislation to get rid of daylight savings time or keep us on one time be interesting to see if anything ever comes out of that. People always forget after the spring, and they love it in the fall when they get that extra hour of sleep. But spring does officially start on Monday. That's when the vernal equinox will happen at 628 a.m. That's Eastern Daylight Time. And that is the day that marks the time when the sun crosses over the equator and the length of the days and nights will be almost equal. Uh, It kind of varies from day to day, but they do. That is the actual official day. It depends on where you live, to be exact, but that is the official Vernal Equinox Day. Of course, then Easter is less than a month away, and then it'll be Memorial Day, and then Fourth of July, followed by Labor Day, and then Happy Halloween, and then Thanksgiving, and it's Christmas all over again, if we're lucky to live through another year, and got to love the holidays. But for now, spring will bring a lot of activities and opportunities in Anderson. Tomorrow, Saturday, brings... The Walk with the Docs fundraiser, the annual uh, fundraiser for the Free Clinic, Anderson Free Clinic and the Free Clinic in Honeyopath. This is a phenomenal organization, and it really shows the true hearts of many of our doctors and nurses and other volunteers who give their time to take care of the less fortunate. Many of these doctors and nurses have already worked brutal shifts in their own practice and or at the hospital, and they leave there and go to work again, taking care of folks who just don't have the means to, to have health care, and we really appreciate what they're doing. You can check out their work online at Anderson Free Clinic. You can look at uh, their Facebook page, or you can become a sponsor of somebody walking the event, or just give them some money say thanks for walking. And also on Saturday, uh, there's one other event downtown that's the Race the Rainbow Run Downtown. And if you don't know what that is, check it out on Facebook. They will be closing some of the roads downtown for that, so you want to be careful about trying to go downtown. It's 5K and a 10K, so through from the morning time, You might want to try to, uh, if you're going downtown, not to be part of the Race the Rainbow or not to watch it, you might want to wait until later in the afternoon. And, of course, next Saturday, the March 25th Meals on Wheels Connector Run is set. Uh, It's the first run for anyone looking to get out and uh, a fun run, looking for anyone who wants to get out and run or walk on the East-West Parkway. Check out their Facebook page for more information, Meals on Wheels of Anderson. Uh, for details on how to participate. Meals on Wheels is a great organization. And they're also looking for volunteers who might be willing to answer the phone for a few mo- uh, mornings in April uh, so some of their folks can get some other things done. You can you can let them know if you can help with that too. And next Saturday, the 25th, is also Anderson's first spring f- balloon fly. So if you want to ride a hot air balloon, good time. There's other activities scheduled out there. And then on Pendleton that same day, March 25th, they have a busy Saturday planned with a townwide cleanup and the hosting the Old Farm Day at the South Carolina Agricultural Museum. If you haven't visited that museum, it's just across from Tri-County Tech, just across the highway over there next to Woodland Plantation. And it is the state's, the South Carolina State Museum for all things farm-related. Very interesting exhibits, a lot of uh, interesting things. Very interactive for young, for young people, too. A great place to take the kids. Very cool. Lots of exhibits. So if you haven't visited there, it's a good thing to, to take some time to do. And don't forget, Tuesday is the regular meeting of Anderson County Council. This week, County Councilman Ray Graham will propose council members merge that $1 million paving fund into the county road system funds. 
Um, we talked about a lot about this last week, but to recap, it is a great idea because for too many years, that $1 million was used for parking lots or diverted into other pet projects in individual districts that weren't really always of best interest to the rest of the county. And the county is currently only able to pave about 20 miles of our aging 1,540 miles of roads every year. And we can see the evidence of that. If you, I've been out through the county a good bit this week riding around um, up to Pelzer and back and, and down south and back. And you can really see some of the roads are in horrible shape. Right now, uh, as it sits, the county needs uh, a lot of money to take care of our roads. And we just don't have it. There's just, there doesn't seem to be the... Um, the, the people have just done it. the statewide we've done that but Anderson County sort of followed suit and it really we need about eight million dollars a year to take care of all of our roads to maintain them to pave them to keep them up to date and uh, just to, just for maintenance of the current roads that we have that's not adding any roads at all and so council was told by at the last county council meeting a week ago Tuesday night from the matrix group uh, consultant that they might need to consider a vehicle tax or other new taxes to make up the difference and uh, Ray Graham, the Anderson County Councilman, he's new on council, but he's been really active, and we appreciate that. He's asking all citizens to bring their best ideas to council, and council promises to take action. Uh, he, he really asked people not to come just whine, but to come if you've got better ideas. Anderson County Councilman, uh, Anderson County Administrator Rusty Burns thinks the proposal is a great idea, and he said they're also working on other, other county projects, including economic development and other things going on in Anderson. So it is, it is growing. Uh, things are going well in Anderson. And this past week in Anderson, it was busy and cold. Uh, winter did blow back through. On Monday, we had a nice chilly day, but a lot of really fine folks braved a chilly wind to dedicate the new uh, 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 Americans with Disability Act kayak launch in Pelzer. It's one of two in Anderson County. The other was uh, dedicated last year at Dolly Cooper Park. It's on the Saluda River, and it will open even more opportunities for folks who need a little extra help getting in the water, getting their kayak in the water. And also for people who just don't want to get wet, just want to get their kayak in the water, can put it there and move right off. Really nice, well done. And we appreciate all the mayors and the council and all the people at Duke Power and all the other organizations that work together to make this happen. And don't forget that the first weekend in June this year is the Saluda River Rally. And you can check out their Facebook page to find out more about that. But we will be talking more about that in future podcasts of the Anderson Observer Podcast News from People You Trust. Also this week, and this is one that a lot of people have been talking about, and I appreciate the folks putting this on, Catherine Smith and a lot of other people. I know I'm leaving out names that I shouldn't be leaving out, but I don't have a good list of names on this. But the Progressive Women of Anderson sponsored a South Carolina Senate District 3 candidate forum. Seven of the eight candidates seeking to fill, fill the seat vacated when Kevin Bryant stepped into the lieutenant governor's office were on hand for the Tuesday night meeting at the library. Attracted a pretty good crowd for starting at 6 p.m., and there was uh, nothing really earth-shattering in it all, but it was a really good chance to get to see the clients and that's, uh, the, the candidates, and that's really important heading into the April 11th GOP primary. There are only, uh, right now, only uh, Republicans, no Democrat filed a run, so it's a GOP primary will probably lead to a runoff, which will lead to the general election, but the primary is April 11th, and as I said, the candidates uh, on, on Tuesday night did re reveal some of their character and their approach to government and let people get to know them a little bit. And I know a lot of folks missed it. A lot of people said they didn't know about it. Read the Anderson Observer, please. It was in there. It was on our calendar. Was <laughs> but, um, but I am going to include the entire audio of the event on this week's podcast and save our interviews that we had done for another time. Uh, so audio from that event, Tuesday night at the Anderson County Library. 
On behalf of the Progressive Women of Anderson and the League of Women Voters, I'd like to welcome you to, the, to this political forum for South Carolina Senate District 3. The Progressive Women of Anderson is a group of politically aware women who want to elevate the public discourse on topics of broad interest in Anderson County. In a moment, Dr. Holly Ulbricht will speak briefly about the League. The purpose of this evening's event is to raise public awareness of the issues affecting Anderson County and to explore how the candidates for state senate hope to address these issues. The format for this evening is each candidate will have three minutes for an opening statement. Dr. Jean Mahaffey will ask questions that have been drafted by the Progressive Women of Anderson in conjunction with questions that have been submitted in the back as uh, people have walked in. Each candidate will have two minutes to answer each question so that we may finish on time. Joyce Beckett will serve as timer. Each candidate has been assigned a number that you'll see up front and alongside uh, their names. And the order of questioning will start with, the first question will be from one and move down toward eight. The second question will start with eight and move in the opposite direction. And we will continue along that line until um, questions are finished. We do intend to end at 7.30, so we will be respectful of your time and finish up at that point. In the interest of having adequate time for remarks and questions, Dr. Ulbrich will also provide a very brief introduction of our candidates. And at this point, I'll turn it over to Holly. One last thing I did want to mention is that the candidates are welcome to come up to the microphone here um, to make their opening three-minute statement. And then after that, we're asking them to use the microphones at the tables and pass those along. Thank you. I'm Holly Ulbricht, co-president of the League of Women Voters of the Clemson area. We started out serving Pickens and Oconee and have added Anderson after the Anderson League ceased to exist. We've been in existence for 50 years and have been doing candidate events for about 49 of those 50 years. We think these are exciting opportunities to get to know candidates and make decisions. And you certainly have a lot of choices in this particular race. Um, we also do a directory of public officials that will be available for you all to, to contact people because we encourage people not only to participate in elections, but to participate in government in other ways, serving on committees and commissions, uh, lobbying, advocating, and being well informed. Uh, now I'm going to present the candidates who agreed to be here. Uh, happy to have them all. John Tucker, Ronald Gallion, Corey Bott, um, Richard Cash, thank you. <laughs> The moment there, uh, Carol Burdett and Don Bowen. Welcome to all of you. Okay, let's get started. Welcome, candidates. You each have three minutes to tell us about yourself, emphasizing your unique qualifications to be the South Carolina Senator for District 3, beginning with number one. My name is John Tucker, and I'm a lifelong Andersonian. I live on 81 and manage the family farm. My lovely wife Kimberly's here tonight. I have two daughters. I uh, graduated from Anderson Public Schools. I was a graduate of the University of South Carolina. I also served on the Board of Visitors at Clemson University, so I should have all of that covered. My passionate issues are those dealing with addiction, with mental health and autism, and also those people with disabilities. Thank you very much. Okay. I usually have a, a big mouth, so I don't normally need a mic, but we'll give it a shot. Um, 
My name is James Galley, and I'm obviously running tonight. I, I'm a, a native of Spartanburg and grew up over there and then went to Furman undergrad and then went to South Carolina Law School. I met my wife down there, an a Anderson girl. I found out that if you marry an Anderson girl, you generally end up back in Anderson. So, uh, But actually, we could, we could live anywhere, and we live here because we love it. Uh, my firm has offices across the Carolinas, but uh, the, the, the place, the things that make this home and make it special to us are... Uh, the fact that we can let our, our kids go out and be free-range kids in our neighborhood and we, have to we don't have to worry about them riding their bikes everywhere. And on Sunday afternoon, it's quiet and you can enjoy family and friends and that sort of thing. So we like it here a lot. Uh, my qualifications are uh, I spent some time with our state Supreme Court. I worked for a governor. I've worked for senators. I worked on the state. I worked on the South Carolina uh, uh, Supreme Court for a couple of years right after law school and then after that I went to work for uh, Senator Strom Thurmond and, and uh, then I moved over to the Senate Judiciary Committee and worked there for a number of years and uh, this was right after 9-11 so I worked on all the national security issues about how we how we uh, capture and detain and interrogate and then ultimately hopefully uh, uh, execute some of the terrorist detainees that we've captured in the years. So I worked on that for a number of years and then worked on two Supreme Court nominations uh, for Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito. And then my wife and I decided we'd done enough public service for a while and we decided to come back home. Um, we brought our, our young family home and we've been here ever since. I, I came home to the U.S. Attorney's Office and was there for a time and then went into private practice. Since then I've worked on regulatory compliance and I think that's given me a unique uh, standpoint on the on, on what our government does to intrude in our lives on a daily, daily basis. It is, I've, I'd have, I've had clients that have had tax liens filed against them and they've been in place for two years before they could get a hearing and that's cost them millions of dollars and then they get it dismissed in, at the first hearing we have. Uh, we've seen our, our state agencies have to go borrow money from federal agencies to make their, their books balance and that's been not just a little bit of money but it's been hundreds of millions of dollars and in some cases billions. So I think that there's definitely a sense that we need to reform our, our, our uh, state government. I think because of my background, I'm, I'm prepared for that. There, the Senate Judiciary Committee is the nastiest committee in politics. Every issue goes through there. Every judge's battle goes through there. There's not a deceit. There's not a strategy. There's not a lie I haven't seen. So I'm very well prepared to go to the South Carolina Senate. Um, but I think at the end of the day, the secret is is really the people in this room and what we've got to do is we've got to get the government out of your way and allow us to serve each other just in a small corner and I think that will go a long way to heal what some of the things we see in our the, the toxic things that we see in our politics so again I'm James Gallion I appreciate the time tonight and I'm looking forward to discussing the issues and the ideas that we have thanks been here that long. It's a great turnout. Um, I'm Brad Johnson. I'm not political. Never have been, never ran for office, never been in office. But I, uh, I'm proud to stand before you tonight to say I am running for South Carolina State Senate. Uh, I've been in Powdersville uh, for the last 19 years. I'm a uh, real estate broker and developer. Uh, I've had a lot of successes up that way. I've stumped my toe a time or 12 as well. Um, I am a father of one daughter, 19 years old. She's at College of Charleston. And uh, I would love to be a state senator. I graduated University of Richmond back in 1983. I moved back here in Greenville, uh, the Greenville area, uh, probably in the early 90s. 
I traveled around with Atlanta Braves for a few years just to play. Oh, well, I say get back. I was not a player. I was a trainer. I was in sports medicine. Uh, my background is in light manufacturing uh, and pharmaceutical plastics. Uh, then I got into real estate. I've been there for the last almost 25 years. Uh, I proudly carry a, a badge with the uh, South Carolina State Constables. Uh, I've been doing that for about 30 years now, 30 years uh, law enforcement experience. Uh, and all of that was for free as volunteer, but I enjoy doing that. It, and now it enables me to get out in front of people like you guys and, uh, and help issues. And uh, I enjoy doing that. Um, can't think of anything else to tell you, but uh, again, I appreciate the opportunity to stand before you. Thank you. My name is uh, Corey Bott, and uh, you'll find that I'm a little unconventional, as I am not a politician either. Um, so I have a prepared statement. I'm getting better at this. Bear with me. What an honor it is to have the opportunity to represent the citizens of Anderson County and District 3. From the ancestry that secured a victory in the Revolutionary War and ensured the birth of this great nation, to a modern Anderson that has a heart like no other. See, I've lived all over the Southeast over the past 23 years. And I can bear witness to you that I've not seen a place where the neighbors are more caring for each other and there is such a charitable, charitable spirit like I've seen right here in Anderson County. You all are truly blessed with that. So why do I seek to represent you in Columbia? Well, that's easy. I have three young children and I can no longer sit idly and complain without standing and at least making my positions known. By my estimation, I have to convince you of three things to earn your vote. First, our values are shared. That the principles that guide me in my daily life are true and steadfast. You'll get more examples from my life to reinforce this at quarrybot.com. Second, I have to convince you that I'm fiscally responsible. Notice I did not say I'm a fiscal conservative because we have several fiscal conservatives that are running up billions of dollars of state debt and have shown no ability to manage the budget. So I think we need to redefine the term fiscal conservative. As a Navy pilot, we train in emergency procedures. We practice them until we get what we call muscle memory. The importance of this is that when an emergency actually occurs, you don't have to think. It's a reflex. Don't you think it's po possible and probable that we need to find somebody with a fiscal responsibility reflex? I'll give you examples in my life that will show you that. Ladies and gentlemen, the third one is the easiest. Am I competent to execute this position? I completed 70 semester hours of upper level courses at Old Dominion University in one year. That's essentially a sophomore, junior, and senior year in 12 months. I might add that I graduated with honors and zero debt, fiscally responsible. Make no mistake, the primary issue of our day is our budget. If we can't get this right, nothing else is going to matter. My young daughter Vivian knows this, and Jamie, my wife, and I have introduced her to fiscal responsibility over the last year. We give her a little stipend when she does the chores on her own. Not long ago, she ruined some of her clothes, and her mama took some of that money out of her stipend. Now she knows, as I know, that the solution to her fiscal crisis is through technology and innovation. You know what she told me for the third time the other day? She's going to invent a robot 
to do our chores for. Now that is thinking outside the box. And maybe we can take some, some lessons from her. Remember, CoreyBot.com, CoreyBot.com, CoreyBot.com. I look forward to getting to know you. Good evening. Uh, my name is Richard Cash, and uh, a lot of y'all got one of these flyers coming in. Uh, my wife is here. Uh, she's the mother of our eight children. And uh, I would leave you with a challenge when you go home tonight would be to see if you can identify which are our eight children and which are the spouses of the three married children. I am a small business owner. For the past 18 years, I've owned and operated three small businesses. So I am used to having to write checks on the front side. I'm used to having to actually balance the checkbook uh, on my own and do all the other things that those of you who are small owners realize that you have to do. You wear all the hats. And I think that's good experience uh, for state government because there's many things down there that you have to be willing and able to take a look at from different angles. Now, I want to say I think we're in a, what I call a providential moment of opportunity uh, in our nation, and I would say that uh, filters down to our state as well, because if Donald Trump had not become president, uh, the eight of us would not be before you tonight. Trickle-down Trump effects and Nikki Haley to the UN and Henry McMaster to the governor's mansion, Kevin Bryant to the lieutenant governor's seat, and that's why we're having this special election. I believe not only are we in a providential moment of opportunity, we are also in a time of change. We are rethinking what the Republican Party brand means. As we go forward, I'd like to offer several thoughts about what I think uh, Republicanism means, things that I believe, and if, if you should elect me to be your state senator, the kind of principles and governing philosophy that I hold. One is, I believe in conservative principles. Now, conservative principles are things we are all familiar with, fiscal responsibility, the rule of law, free market, strong national defense. There's nothing new on that list, nor does there need to be anything new on the list of conservative principles. I believe in constitutional fidelity, interpreting the Constitution according to its original meaning, uh, not the idea that it is somehow an evolving document. I take the Bill of Rights seriously, so you can count on me to defend religious liberty, freedom of speech, and the Second Amendment, among other things. The third thing I would say to you, the third C here, in my uh, philosophy of government is this. I believe in a Christian or Judeo-Christian worldview. I believe that there is eternal, natural, and moral law, that we are accountable to an almighty God and that our civil law, where it meets and interacts with moral law, must be based upon what we would call moral and natural law. Now, what would make me uniquely qualified uh, to serve in this position? I would just say two things very quickly. One is courage. Uh, I took on Lindsey Graham in 2014 because I thought he was wrong on immigration. And the other would be leadership. I am leading the movement for personhood in this state to protect innocent human life beginning at conception. Thank you. Good evening and thank you for coming out tonight. I am honored to have the opportunity to run for South Carolina Senate District 3 again. And we are blessed 
in this country to have the opportunity to serve if we so desire. I owe so much of the guts to do what I'm doing right now to the inspiration of my grandmother, a woman of great faith with a fifth grade education. She shared her faith with me at an early age and she encouraged me to get a college education. I was the first in my family to earn a college degree. She taught me about personal responsibility, respect for others, and always said, I'd rather wear out than rust out. That's where I get the willingness that I have to work tirelessly for this community and you, the people of Anderson County. I was first elected to Pendleton Town Council 30 years ago this year. I know I look really young and it makes me sound old, but I got an early start. During those 30 years, I continued on town council for 10 years and the mayor for 12. During these past 30 years, I have worked side by side with the most wonderful people in the world, some of you sitting right here in this room. It has been my honor and privilege to cheerfully give of my time, my talent, and my treasures to make this community a better place for everyone. After working my way through college, I've worked in all three sectors of the community. The public sector working for the state of South Carolina and Anderson County, the private sector by working for a reputable construction company in their marketing department and managing an apartment complex, and in the nonprofit sector where I currently serve as the executive director of your local United Way. Now, I'm a longtime Republican, but I realize that as Republicans, it seems like we're always fighting against things, which means we're reacting. I think it's time we start setting our own agenda. And I embrace the values of the Republican Party as I am resolutely pro-life and grateful that my single mom did not terminate her pregnancy that was unexpected. She had me instead. So I'm passionate about preventing unwanted pregnancies, especially among teen girls. I am a supporter of the Second Amendment, but recognize that there are symptoms of violence that we must address. Those being strengthening our mental health services, decreasing the use of illegal drugs, working to rid our community of gangs, and working on conflict resolution skills. Most importantly, I'm a Christian and I serve out my Christian faith as a member of Pendleton United Methodist Church and a lay minister at Sandy Springs United Methodist Church. I don't just talk about problems. I have a record of working to solve problems. But not every problem is solved in the board table. Some can be solved around your kitchen table. Let me leave you with this. May the best woman win. Thank you. <laughs> My name is Don Bowen, and you might, uh, some of y'all might wonder, what in the world would somebody want to run for the Senate seat here in Anderson, South Carolina? Well, let me start by giving you a little background. I was born in Charleston, South Carolina. I was born to, my father had a sixth grade education, and my mother came from Epworth Children's Orphanage. Now, they insisted that we go to school, and I graduated from public school. I graduated from Wren High School. Then I graduated from the University of South Carolina with a major in business and minor in economics. And I'm a very, very conservative Republican and pro-life, as, as, as I should be. 
I have three children, seven grandchildren, two great-grandchildren, and was married for 45 years to one of the most wonderful women, and she passed away just recently. I'm retired from the, from the business world. I worked in our family store in Pelzer. I worked in the grocery store every afternoon when I got out of school. I drove a school bus. I tended to cows when I got home. I did the whole nine yards, so I know what it's like to work, and I know how hard it is to earn money out there. When I was at Bilo, I ran the Bilo out here on 81. I ran the one at Lakeside. I was in the top three in the company for bottom line contribution and sales increase. I had a 12% increase in my traffic every month, and it was from treating people like they should be treated. I and how did I get started into politics? Well, I, I built a house to retire to, and I didn't like the way it was taxed. So I ran a statewide property tax movement. And lo and behold, we got 50% of the taxes taken off of it. I even had to battle Holly Ulbrich on a lot of that stuff. But I found Holly to be a very, very nice person. She used to intimidate me so. But uh, the League of Women Voters were very nice people to work with. I ran the statewide property tax and was successful with that. I served four terms in the House of Representatives. And I was on the 3M committee, the Education Committee twice, the Judiciary, and the Judiciary is the second strongest committee in the General Assembly on the House side. I, my accomplishments when I was in House, and I was elected to House District 8, my accomplishments were I helped raise the $7 million that helped put the Green Pond Landing into place, and that has been a tremendous success for, for Anderson and the whole lake area in the upstate. I, read, I put together a Savannah River caucus. I went down into Georgia. I said, you know, I need help from you guys, too. Y'all down on the Georgia side, we've got to work together to try to make a good management system and make, make our river basin serve us all in a very responsible way. I passed texting while driving. That was a hard one to pass. Everybody in the General Assembly texted. Nobody wanted to get caught texting while they were driving, so it was very hard to get that one passed. Water permitting, used to anybody could take any amount of water they wanted to out of any of our systems. Now they have to be permitted if it's over a million gallons. And that's the end of what I've got to say, I guess. <laughs> Thank y'all. Thank you to each of you. Now two minutes for your responses to the following questions. What one, one, issue that a state senator can impact interests you most and how will you as a freshman senator garner support for legislation to address that issue we'll begin with mr bowen and work our way back toward number one at mr um, tucker well how lucky i am to be the first one to go with this i have been working for the last seven or eight months with the, with the head of the former head of the education committee to restructure the way we do taxes in South Carolina because I realized I can't tell, I've been down there for four terms and I can't really see how the tax money flows in and I sure can't see how it flows out down there. So we have been working, doing a comprehensive study. We've met with the, and Frank Rainwater told me not to use his name, but I'm gonna use it anyhow. We've met with the state head economist trying to get a handle on how our revenue flows through the state. And, and I think that we can manage the tax dollars that we have better, first of all, if we know what we've got, and then if we know how we're spending it. And as I look at the way we spend some of the money down there, I think that we need to prioritize 
what the public wants their tax dollars spent on in a given year. We should pick the four top priorities that they want to do. And if it's roads, well, let's, let's allocate a certain percent of that fixing roads. And if it's schools, let's allocate a certain percent of, of it to schools. And then, of course, we've got Medicaid, which is another big, big chunk of money that comes out of our General Assembly. We've got to be cognizant of how hard those tax dollars are earned out here with the people who contribute to our state. And then we've got to be very, very frugal. And I use my old grocery store frugality in how I manage my house. And I think that the state could benefit from operating how they do their expenditures in a frugal and uh, uh, a, a way that everybody can get, can be, uh, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> but so that everybody can be frugal in, in the way we handle those dollars and everybody can, it can be equitable to everybody that's out there. And I, I, that pretty well answers the question from my standpoint. Thank you very much. We all know as freshmen, when you go into the Senate, or maybe you don't know, you sit on this back row and you have very little that you are able to uh, bring to the forefront. I think the first thing as a senator that I would need to do, and being that I don't know a lot about what goes on in Columbia, and I think that may be a good thing, because I want to know what I believe in taking it to Columbia. But sitting on that back row and beginning to look at what's going on, I think that there are things that are very, very important. And I, I, don't, I don't think I can put one above the other. They're the things that we need to be investing in as a county. Because I'm, I believe that if we will invest in these things, there's a return that comes from it. And that is that we must invest in educating our children. We must invest in our infrastructure. And we must invest in our opportunities that we have for I'm like you, Don. I just lost my third, my third thing. Uh, it must be contagious. But if we will investigate, in, in, invest in education, infrastructure, and public safety, because we all want to feel safe, we will have industry come in our community. We will have small businesses open. We will have people that want to retire here and tourists that want to come to our community. So, in, in essence, it is supporting those things that are going to help make Anderson County a better place. Can you repeat the question, please? Sure. What one issue that a state senator can impact interests you most, and how will you, as a freshman senator, garner support for legislation to address that issue? Okay. Now, some people are probably going to accuse me of being a one-issue candidate, but in the nature of the question, she said, what one issue interests you the most and that you can affect as a freshman senator? And so that is without a doubt the right to life for each and every human being beginning at the moment of conception. When I ran against Lindsey Graham in 2014, the Republican Party put a question on the ballot, and it was an advisory question. They asked their party members to tell them, do you think the Constitution should be amended so that each life, born and pre-born, is protected beginning at conception? You may not remember that question, but it was on the ballot in 2014. 79% of Republicans in this state answered that question in the affirmative. Uh, the next year, uh, I, be, I started an organization called Personhood South Carolina, and I said, why can't we put that question back on the ballot for the people to vote on 
as an actual constitutional amendment and not an advisory question. I made 13 trips to Columbia last uh, year, and uh, I spent 26 days there lobbying the senators over the personhood bill. Uh, the bill got uh, out of subcommittee, which it had never done before. It got out of the Judiciary Committee. It probably missed by one vote in the Rules Committee of getting to the Senate floor. Uh, this year, I, I have had to concentrate on this, but there is a group of people working on the personhood bill uh, to pass it this session. And if I'm elected to the State Center, Senate, I will uh, pretty much become the leader of the personhood movement when I walk in the door because that is what I've been doing for the past two years. I've spent seven years of my life working in the pro-life movement. Uh, I believe it is absolutely the first and foremost duty of government is to protect innocent human life. It's not its only responsibility. Government must uh, fix our roads. That's a core responsibility of government. But when you ask what is the first duty of government is to protect your life and your life and everyone in this room's life, their liberty and their property, but life is always the first right. Thank you very much. All right, sorry. For everybody over there, I'm sorry. You'll, you'll just have to hear me. Um, so the obvious, the obvious thing from my end is the budget, right? I already mentioned that. So, as a junior senator, you're not going to have a lot of power, they say. Well, the first thing we do is we have candidates up here that say they're for term limits. Well, let's sign that pledge now. If you're for term limits, then the next senator from here should limit themselves to two terms. That sets the example for the rest of the state. We already have a strong force in the governor's house because we have the lieutenant governor from right here. So the next step is decentralization. Now I know this is gonna sound a little wacky at first, but just think about this. I can run a small business from this, from this one little magic machine. So why are we still thinking of government in the 50s kind of mentality? Why are all the branch heads in Columbia? Why can't we have some of them here in Anderson? Why do we send our money to Columbia and then beg for it to come back here? So with decentralization, you also make lobbying harder. Now folks have to spread out. They can't just take you to dinner and, and lunch in Columbia all day. So the next step then is, as I said, you're gonna find out I'm a quick study. The budget, you have to know what you can cut. So if you look up high graph of the budget, 40% goes to education, 30% goes to healthcare, and everything else falls into the other 30%. So a lot of times, candidates like to talk about they're gonna cut social programs. There's no money there. Social programs are programs of the heart, first of all, anyway. So if you believe in the Constitution, if you believe in liberty, then you know that that's hearts and minds where we change the mentality there. You can't cut that. So the only places you have to find efficiency in education, because that's the big money, and then in healthcare. So then the next step is you have to know which one of these folks is going to be able to talk and who can stay up all night. I don't sleep, folks. All right, I have three kids. They're six, three, and nine months. All right, so when mommy and daddy get done with the kids, I do my research after hours. You need to send a message to Tom Davis that there's somebody else coming up there that can talk all night. You want to stop the budget? We'll just keep talking. We'll keep talking until they pay attention, and then we'll bring it from Anderson County. Thank you. Let me make a, let me make a quick modification to the candidates that uh, Mr. Mike 
implied, and I can't see Mr. Cash, so some of these folks over here can't. If you would like to go to the podium so you can be seen as well as heard, then that's fine. Hello, it's me again. Uh, again, I'm Brad Johnson. And as a freshman in the Senate, obviously there's a lot to know there, a lot, a lot of uh, different people to go out there and meet. But I would have an agenda to, uh, to work on ethics. And I think one way to out, the, to out the ethic problem is to ask questions. And I think the simplest questions will trip up the most deceiving person. And I think they'll try to cover a lot. But uh, ethics, obviously, is a big concern that we have down there. Uh, look at the people as uh, some of the chairmen of some of the committees. Um, it, it, it's a shame. It's embarrassing. And uh, I'm learning more and more each day uh, <laughs> what this is all about. And it's these people here should be thanked for doing what they're doing because it's, it's a reputation game. And unfortunately, it's not a good reputation that these people have. So hopefully, whoever's selected here tonight can go down there and make a difference. Um, another thing that I'd like to try to do uh, is uh, legislative income. And it's not reform, but it's to disclose what these legislators make. Where does their money come from? Uh, I think if you can follow that money, it will tell a lot of uh, tales as to what's going on. Um, it's hard to believe that some of the people that sit on the board or sit on the, uh, uh, in the legislative down there can upper, uh, run two jobs. I mean, you don't get paid a lot to do this. It's definitely a passion. But there's a lot of people that's made a lot of money, and I don't know how they've done it. And I'd like to get to the bottom of it and try to figure it out. Because I'm sure what they're doing is we wouldn't like it if we could actually put a finger on it. So, thank you. I want to get the red flag. No. <laughs> well, I would disagree somewhat. I, I know that you can, in the Senate, uh, it's a little bit different than the House. You can be immediately effective if you understand the rules. That, that's just the way the rules work. Uh, each senator has the ability to, uh, they call it putting his name on a bill, and you can slow things down immediately. And, and so that gives you leverage. It also means that you can, you know, whenever a bill is being considered on the floor, you can immediately offer amendments. That's not the case in the House. And so it's not the case sometimes in other places as well. So uh, I would disagree somewhat. Even a, even a backbencher senator can have an immediate impact. Uh, the one thing I would work on is the number one thing I see it, 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 that leads to all the other social pathologies we see in, see in our state, and that's the dissolution of the family. Um, what you subsidize, you get more of. And that's what we're subsidizing is dissolution. If you, if you look at family breakup, crime, I made a list here, crime, drug use, child abuse. I was a former, I'm a, I'm a former federal prosecutor. I was an assistant United States attorney for a while. And the, I, I, could, I, could, I could identify them as soon as they walked in the door to, go to, to come into court, uh, the kids that grew up in single family homes. And I, and I could tell just by the, their background and reading their rap sheet how long they had been on their own. So I think what we need to do is we need to subsidize movement of our people. Sometimes we give people just enough money to stay in the worst positions, places in our state. We don't need to do that. We need to help them move to find other jobs. And we can do that. We can reform our, our, our welfare system and our social assistance, not without spending any more money. We need to subsidize job seeking. You know, and then we need to focus on these things because, you all know, we're wasting our most precious assets. Our people are our most precious assets. 
And in some cases, there, there are kids in, in communities across the state, but in, in this community, that don't have a chance unless we fix what we are subsidizing. We've got to flip the, flip the incentives that p their families have and everything else to stay together to help them grow because those are our fundamental building blocks of our entire culture. So thank you. Thank you. I wouldn't consider myself a freshman senator at all because I spent 12 years in the House of Representatives and when I left in 1996, I was chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. So I think I know my way around and I won't be intimidated because I know most of those people in the Senate. One of the first things that I would do would be to eliminate the personal business tax. That's, per, that's PT100. That is a punitive tax on small business. If any of you are in the rental business and you know exactly what I'm talking about. The second thing I'd like to do is to make Act 388 optional. That's the property tax, what I call the David Beasley money that comes back to you. I would like to have the opportunity to pay that tax because it may put me in a different tax bracket and also in return I would get school choice. So that's something that we need to think about. Number three is ethics. The Senate needs to be governed by one uh, ethics committee, that's the state committee, and not cover for their own. And the last thing is on the gas tax, as long as the state infrastructure bank is involved with it and legislators are directing where the money goes, whether to Charleston or PD or Greenville or whatnot, we need professionals to tell what the where the money's going and prioritize our roads. So I will not be voting for any gas tax unless the State Infrastructure Bank and the legislature are out of spending the money. Thank you. Please sir, just stay there. We'll begin with you and work our way back to Mr. Bowen. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> okay. All right. District 3, like every other district in South Carolina, has an infrastructure problem as roads, bridges, and Downsy Road. What solutions to this problem would you support? Well, I, I, I think you know where I stand on the gas tax, and I don't want it to come out of the general fund because all of us will pay for it out of the general fund. Now, the advantage to the gas tax is that 60% will be paid by us and 40% would be paid by people traveling through it. But you're not going to get anything unless you get Hugh Leatherman and that crowd off of the state infrastructure bank and they're spending that money. So I don't know, uh, the governor's already said that he's gonna veto it. So I'm sort of waiting on the leader of our party to give us some idea where to go. Well, I'm not in favor of the gas, increasing the gas tax either. Uh, I think one of the things we need to do is we need to look very carefully at our, the, the amount of mileage that we have to maintain. I mean, it, I think there, I saw a slide recently that showed that South Carolina maintains a road system that would take, that would go all the way across the country and back some. And, and that's a problem when you've got, uh, you've got legislators that are determining that the roads in front of their businesses or perhaps in front of the, the property they own or, and we're wanting to sell and that sort of thing are going to be, uh, paved before, you know, highways and that sort of thing. I mean, I, I have to drive a good bit in my job. I've got clients all over uh, you know, southeast, uh, and so I mean, you you go to the you go to the border at, at North Carolina, and you can immediately see a difference in the road quality. 
And the reason is, is because I represent, I've represented some, some highway contractors, and I, I'm very familiar with how the NCDOT does their work. And one of the things they do is they have a very definitive formula for how they maintain their roads. And it's a, it's a traffic miles, it's a place, it's a, a time of last service. There's a whole algorithm that they use, and it's a priority basis. I and mean, that's the key. If we can reform SCDOT, and if we can put in place a good maintenance system and a good structure for determining how we pave and maintain our roads, then we can have a discussion about how much money we spend on it. But until we're certain that we're spending our money properly, there's no reason to give more money. As a matter of fact, there, one of the SCDOT commissioners was in Greenville, I think it was last week, and you know what he said? He said, I don't know what the problem is, I just know we need more money. I know part of what the problem is, and that guy's part of it. And, and, and so that's the thing, is if you can't tell me what the problem is, then you probably shouldn't be the commissioner. So I, I think we do need to fix... We do need to fix how we prioritize our roads. We do need to look at states that do it effectively. Georgia doesn't do that good a job. Alabama surprisingly does a better job than we do, uh, at least in my experience. So anyway, I, I think we've got some opportunities there and we just need to pursue them wisely. It's me again. <laughs> so the infrastructure, uh, it's a disaster. The um, the roads, DOT, uh, we need to make one person accountable for all of that, and that should be the governor. So do away with the uh, DOT commissioners. My understanding is the commissioners can only be fired by the governor if the uh, legislature wants them to be fired. And I don't, I don't think that's a good way to do that. Um, but, you know, We've got some good people working for DOT. I work with a lot of these guys, a lot of these engineers across the state uh, in doing developments. Uh, but we've got an opportunity, too, to take the good people we have and add to it and let them do what they do. They let them do what they're good at doing uh, and take away some of the government regulations that makes them not be able to do those things. The, um, uh, you know, the contractors that go out there and put down the asphalt, the concrete, or whatever they're putting down, Let's hold these guys to a quality level. Let's make them accountable for what they put down. If they don't put it down right, let's take it up at their expense, not our expense. And that's not continue to run on it until they wear it out. Um, the, in this too, this, the DOT structure that we have or the problem that we have right now or the, the gas tax that they're talking about, not endorsing, but talking about, they, um, this is only for state roads. Let's not talk about your county roads and the city roads. This is all state roads. So, you know, that's two separate things, potentially two different taxes. Um, but let's do away with the uh, DOT commissioners, um, the bank. Uh, let's hold these guys accountable, and I think we'll do a lot better job. Thank you. stay seated just because uh, I'm better with my notes here. Um, so part of that education I told you about, the 70 hours, uh, was microbiologically centric, took immunology classes, these were four, five hundred, six hundred level courses. Um, I don't remember a lot about that to be quite honest, that was a long time ago. But what I do remember is that bacteria has a problem with sunlight. You know what? So would our infrastructure. If we got some of this out in the public and actually had these debates, in a more public forum, I think we could see a lot. To, t to dovetail on that, I went to a county council meeting last week and they gave a brief 
on the infrastructure here, the roads. And it was an eight-year plan, and yet I heard nothing, nothing about automatic driving cars. I'm just referenced an article here in 2020. Okay, it's 2017 already. We're speeding along. In 2020, Audi is going to field their first self-driving car. They're not testing. They're fielding it. So if we're making eight-year plans and we're not taking this into account, I just pulled another off this magic machine. There's a, there's a uh, publication called government.com or government.org, and that publication had an article in 2014 outlining seven things that communities need to be looking for with the advent of AI and self-driving cars. I contend that maybe we should take a step back because if you're financially responsible, if you're not sure what you're buying, you're going to take a step back and look. And even more important, if you don't have the money to do it, you don't buy it. So our roads aren't that bad, folks. All right, I've been all around the southeast. I can, <laughs> I can take you to some places that have bad roads. If we've got a few potholes that need fixed, let's fix those. But we don't need to go into full resurfacing if we haven't taken into effect what's coming down the pike in the next five years. So that's what my, that's my thoughts on that. All right, South Carolina DOT is responsible for approximately 41,500 miles of road. It's the fourth largest road system in the country that a state is responsible for, following only North Carolina, Virginia, and Texas. 50% of our non-interstate roads are rated in poor condition. That includes your primary and your secondary non-interstate roads. Our gas tax is the second lowest in the nation we have the second deadliest rural roads in America. Gas tax is 16.75 cents per gallon, and it has not changed since 1987 when a postage stamp cost 22 cents. I think we can all agree that there is a problem. We're trying to solve this problem from a conservative point of view. Now, one idea that's already been mentioned, and I think the first idea that has to happen is we have to have a direct line of accountability between the citizens and the governor and the DOT. We do have to have a chief executive who will say the buck stops here, give me the authority and then hold me responsible. I think we're going to have to have some reprioritization of funds, at least on a short-term basis. You know, a lot of the money in DOT right, budget right now goes to new road expansion. Uh, we, we all enjoy the east-west connector. Uh, the east-west connector is three miles long. It costs $21 million to build it. So as conservatives, I find that we have two, uh, two values in tension here. Uh, one value is that we want low taxes. The second conservative value, however, that I hear when I talk to voters is this. We have to pay for what we want. We have to pay for what we want. South Carolina population has increased from 3.5 million to 4.6 million in the past 25 years. It's going to be 5 million soon. Uh, that leaves us with the revenue problem, and she's cut me off. I did. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> Accountability, reprioritizations, and revenue to come. Without repeating everything that's been said about the direct accountability 
the better use of the money. The deal is that, though, as normal citizens who don't under who don't hear these numbers and don't hear all of the facts, it's hard to explain why you ride around on bumpy roads that have potholes that cost millions of dollars, state dollars in repairs. So what do we do? I think we as citizens have to demand that the legislature work together to figure out the problem. Instead of saying, we, it's like blaming, well, if we could just do this, if we could just do that, so what do we have? We have to have an approach of the legislature deciding what is best, and I agree that we need accountability, and I agree that we need to have bet and use better models. In 2008, I-385 was resurfaced. They used concrete. It lasts longer. And you know what that project did? It came in under budget and ahead of schedule. It's almost unheard of. Why could we not use those kinds of models and get the best bang for the buck for you, the citizens of South Carolina? I guess we should first start and talk about what we get in Anderson County. At the ACTC, we get about $2 million a year, and we do that. We, the, the way we make that a bigger number is we partner with the state on some of the roads that we do here, but $2 million is not anything for a, a, a county like Anderson to get. And one of the reasons that, we've get, that, we, that we don't get the money that we should, if you look at the Interstate 85, we've got about 38 miles of Interstate 85 on Anderson. And if you look at the traffic counts, when you get up to about Piedmont, the traffic count's around 80,000. When you get up to Woodruff Road, it's 110,000. Well, when you go to allocating road repair money, they allocate it to where the highest traffic count is. And of course, Greenville got the money for the Woodruff Road area, and they needed about 500 million to fix it. But we here in Anderson got nothing. And there's an act either, I can't remember which one it is, either 119 or 113, that says that road money will be allocated based on the traffic count. And we need to really go back and restructure that and, and put our road money based on the population and let it be held for the counties. And then the counties can work in conjunction with their neighboring counties and pave roads in their area. And all the money won't go to Charleston, Columbia, and Greenville, as it usually does. One lady told me that I talked to, she said, you know, if we could get the money that Hugh Leatherman sent to Florence, the money that Bobby Harrell took to Charleston, and the chairman Buck Limehouse, when he was over the DOT, sent to Charleston, we probably could fix all our roads now. 60% of the people that I've been talking to are for the gas tax, but their big concern is they want to be sure that that money is allocated specifically to <coughs> roads. And I suggest that when we do that, there's something called a sunset clause that we can put on stuff. And once you put a sunset on it, we have to revisit it, say in five years or 10 years or whatever sunset clause you want to put on it. And then the people can see if the money that we're spending is being spent in an appropriate manner and the way they feel like it should be spent. Thank you very much. Stay there. We'll begin this next poem. Yeah. I, don't, I don't even get to prepare. <laughs> um, uh, this, this one comes from the audience. What is your position on South Carolina's accepting or not the $1 billion or so for health care each year as a means of fully funding Medicaid? 
it would offer good help to thousands and support jobs for others. Well, right now, the, there's two big figures that are on our budget. The biggest figure that we have is for our public school system. And there's, there's several different figures floating around. Right now, I think about 55% of the state's total budget goes into public education. And I'm not saying that that's, that shouldn't be there because education is very important. But we need to be more frugal with what we're doing. And the second biggest number we have is for Medicaid. And, I do, and that is a number that continuously grows. And by taking that federal money, we, it would make us put more people on the system that's already overloaded to start with. So I don't feel like we need to take that federal money. I feel like that we need to try to pare down what we're spending in Medicaid now with new restrictions. And those will have to be done through Washington. We can't do that from here in South Carolina. And I think that, does that pretty well cover what you're asking? And I didn't have much preparation time either. Thank you. Well, we all know the healthcare system is broken. We know that there are lots of issues around right now, whether or not there's gonna be any money available from Washington with the changes in the administration there. But I stood here last year and I talked about how I didn't understand why federal government didn't work with providers in, in doing health care reform so that we could fix the problem rather than the government taking over the problem. In fact, if you look at what happened, why didn't we, for instance, bring insurance and health care providers to the table and do interstate commerce instead of every state having a locked-in insurance company or companies? So the thing is, is open the borders, allowing people to that free commerce, because if you remember, Thomas Jefferson said something one day, what the government can give you, the government can take away. So that's enough said. We need to be careful about how much we depend on the government in all the issues of our life, not just in health care. Can you please repeat the question? Sure. Uh, what is your position on South Carolina's accepting or not the $1 billion or so for health care each year as a means of fully funding Medicaid? It would offer good health to thousands and support jobs for many others. Okay. Uh, I'm not an expert on this topic, so I'm not going to try to pretend to be one. Uh, I would not be in favor of of accepting additional federal money, if that's what the question is meant to ask, that would then lead to expanding uh, Medicaid in the state, I, I believe. Uh, I saw something recently that, that uh, the Medicaid uh, cutoff right now is about 137% of the federal poverty level. So if we're talking about accepting more federal money that's going to put more people on Medicaid, uh, in that situation I would not be in favor of that. So this one I'm going to wax a little uh, poetic on because this one to me is it's a broader issue. It's 30% of the budget. So we have to find something to do to make it more efficient. Um, something I mentioned to, to the folks we talked to last night, it's always amazing to me that our God will grant us free will, but it's so hard for man. And really that's the real issue that we're facing here. The government has such a role in all of our lives that whether you're a progressive 
or whether you're a conservative, it affects us all. Every day, somebody's telling you what to do. Every day, they've got their hands in your pockets. And I say they because they do come from us, but they've been there so long, they've forgotten that. So for me, medical care is, is very personal. My wife is a nurse practitioner up in Greenville. I'm actually gonna be meeting with some of her physicians because I'm gonna to defer to them. Much like what you're gonna find out more about me throughout this campaign, is right now I have to talk a lot because you gotta to get to know me. But I think as your senator, the execution side of this is then I turn around and now I'm the 95% listener because I have to represent you. 5% is execution in Columbia. And since I'm not an expert in all these fields, I'm gonna to have to rely on the experts. What you're, what you're getting out of me is thoughtful, deliberate judgment with the reflexes to make the right decision. So I don't have an, I would be neutral right now on this issue until I get some more information. Thank you. Guess what? It's me again. The, uh, like Corey here, I don't have a educated opinion on the uh, Medicaid situation, but I do have an opinion about federal government granting us money and with the strings that's gonna be attached to it. Because if we accept this money, it's just gonna be, we'll lose control. And uh, they'll tell us how we're gonna do this. Um, but I'd like to take their money without strings and put it into the system. <laughs> So if y'all can help us figure that out, let's try that trick. Um, you know, I too would do Decentralize the government. There you go. <laughs> anyway, I, uh, you know, I too would refer to a lot of or defer to a lot of uh, uh, physicians to get their opinion. You know, I think that's one thing that as a, a state senator, whether it's me or these guys here, what we need to learn to do is not act like we know everything, reach out to people who do know more than we do. I mean, it's, it's not a shame to stand in front of somebody and say, I don't know. I think it's a strong thing to do. So I would, I would defer to uh, other people and to see where we go with this. Thank you. I do know a little bit about Medicaid, unfortunately. Um, and what I know I don't like. Uh, I would not take the additional monies Y'all, Medicaid makes Social Security look solvent. Um, it is, it is a, a, a pending financial disaster. We don't need to be increasing what we've, uh, this tsunami of debt that we've got. Uh, it's just a, a plain fact that, that anybody who's being honest with you will tell you. The other thing is, what we need to do is, we do need to be working with across state lines, but open borders for, for health insurance is not necessarily the answer, and here's why, because, uh, you can't just go into a state and offer coverage. You've got to have a network there. You've got to be able to negotiate for services. There's a whole process that goes through because of all the government regulation. We've got to trim all that out. One solution is for our states to work together to pass what they call interstate compacts. We have these all the time, and we have them for water rights, for air pollution. I mean, you name it, we've got these compacts. That is one constitutional way that the states can work together with other states to pass model legislation that allow this additional uh, coverage to be placed. Right now, the, the, uh, the Obamacare fix legislation does not allow for co-op medical treatment to occur. That would be one way. You get a, a catastrophic coverage to protect you against you know, 
just an incredible hit from a disease, and you pay a co-op every month. So you pay $50 a month and you can go whenever you want to. Uh, $50 a person for my family would be a little expensive, but that's okay. It would still be less than what we're paying now for a high deductible plan. So there's some creative things, some innovative things that we can do to help our Medicaid recipients without burdening ourselves with additional debt that down the road we're not going to be able to rely on the federal government to pay for. Thank you. Does anybody in here know what the difference is between the prison system and the health care system? In the prison system, if you're good, you get a benefit. You get assigned to the laundry, or you get to work for the warden, or you get credits, or you get out early. You get, you get something in return. In the health care field, if you're good, what benefit do you get? You get the same benefit as the guy that eats 32 cheeseburgers and smokes 42 packs of cigarettes a week. It's the same thing. I wouldn't take the money. I wouldn't take the money from the federal government until we change our behavior, until we start managing our health care on our own. You talk about jobs, Gene, about how that would. When are we going to fully fund mental health? When are we going to fill those beds at Pat Harris Hospital? There's a vacancy factor there because of money. How about disabilities and special needs? How about those with addictions, counselors? Those are qualified people that need to be qualified to deal with those everyday problems that I'm sure a lot of you know what I'm talking about. So no, I don't believe in handcuffed money from, from Washington. Thank you. This next one is for you too. <laughs> it's like a wave here, back and forth. What are the most important actions the state legislature can take to encourage a strong economy and create an atmosphere of job growth for South Carolina? Make it uh, attractive to hire good teachers make South Carolina a, an example uh, so that we can, we, can, we can attract teachers that come here. One of the things that we have here in Anderson is Tri-County Tech. The technical school is a crown jewel for industry that's looking to locate in, in this area. So I would say we would improve our technical skills and support our technical colleges but I think we need to be able to recruit good teachers to take care of our children and pay them what they deserve. Thank you. Businesses today pay more in regulatory compliance costs than they do in taxes. That's the number one thing that we've got to fix if we're going to, if we're going to supercharge or turbocharge our economy. When, when we, we, I have some banks as clients, when they have to increase their tier one capital to over a billion dollars, and that's their reserve capital, when they have to increase it to over a billion dollars just to be able to pay for their compliance costs, that's killing our local banks, okay? That's why we have these, these new banks that we don't know, <laughs> they change names almost weekly, and, and that's why we're seeing that. And we see that not just at our bank level, we see that at every level of the economy. It is. We've got 1920s regulatory structures in when we have 
we are now in the 21st century, and, and you, can't get, you can't get a reply to an email to a state agency. And the agency loses track of their money. They lose, heck, they lose track of kids, for heaven's sakes. So, and, then, and yet those same people are passing these regulations. The one thing we could do more than anything else to, to help our economy would be to reform our state agencies and do, by doing this one thing. Uh, I forget who mentioned it earlier, but you can sus you sunset regulations on a rolling basis. So it takes you about 10 years to work through your, all, all your regulations. You make the General Assembly debate and reauthorize each one. And that would bring much, much needed sunshine to what those regulatory burdens cost our, our businesses. And that would increase the amount of money that our businesses have to reinvest in our people and in capital expenditures and everything else. And that can be done here on a local level uh, in, in the state without a doubt. Thank you. I'm not going to say it this time. Yeah, I will. <laughs> um, regulations. I think that we ought to uh, reduce some of the restrictive regulations that we have to make it easier to recruit uh, some of these larger companies, larger firms. And we've got great assets with the community, with the people of the community, the asset of the lake. It's a draw. It brings people to the upstate. People want to live here because of that. Corey mentioned it a while ago. I mean, we've got good people here. Um, the education that we have, the technical schools that we have that help train a lot of the, uh, the people who work at Bosch and these other companies around, uh, we have a tremendous asset in that. And we use that to attract companies. Um, taxes, these manufacturers that come in on taxes, a lot of them are drawn in by um, fee and lieu of taxes. So they'll bait the taxes for a while. You know, let's look at reducing that tax. The manufacturing tax, I think, is at 10.5% on manufacturing. I mean, that's, that's incredibly high. Uh, roads, we've got to improve our roads. We know that. We hear that all the time. But that is one of the draws that some of these major manufacturers talk about is too. In addition to improving the roads, let's clean the roads up that we have. Um, you know, safety, law enforcement. Law enforcement is key. Law enforcement is your first line of defense to, uh, to terrorists. You know, who's going to know it before CIA knows it or FBI knows it? If they're here in the streets of Anderson, we're going to know it first. So, you know, so support law enforcement. Let's help those guys out with their salaries. Let's help them out with the tools that they carry. And uh, this overall public safety. And again, I'm not going to get this red card, so I'm leaving now. <laughs> All right, so this, this to me goes to some core principles of a conservative. So core principle one, right? Government does not create jobs. Government does not create jobs. If they do, they're taking away from the private sector. That's a constant, always. Now, from our more libertarian-leading side of the party, it's even more. Government influences... I, I, can't, I can't quote Ayn Rand properly, so just read Ayn Rand, okay? But what I'm trying to get at is, as a libertarian, you don't want any government intervention. So, let's deal with what we have, though. All right, so in Anderson County, what I understand is our STEM program is not only tops in the state, right? It's a leader nationally. We've already made money off the STEM program. We've sold it to the state. Let's expand that. I talked a little bit about my little girl being interested in the robots. 
Bosch, robotics. I've seen lots of uh, new programs come in at the schools that are focusing there. So we can encourage that. We can be cheerleaders for that as your senator, and we can help to open that up. I would also say that we need to get into the Department of Education at the administrative level. I believe you have 30 years experience there. So we would call on you for some efficiency items that you have ideas on. And I think if we get into the administrative side and find efficiencies there, because that's where the high salaries are, folks. That's where people don't want to retire, you know, because they're making too much money. So we have to break it down at departmental level, and you have to look at the budget overall. So I spent two years at the Pentagon. I had the, the privilege of working on two budget cycles. And what I can tell you is that no one wants to give up their money. So everyone has a little fiefdom, whether they're an undersecretary, whether they're a department head, it just becomes a little fiefdom, their little you know, pot of money to themselves. You could try numerous budgeting techniques, but the only way to actually get them to be efficient is to straight out cut it. That's it, thank you. So I believe the question is dealing with the most important actions the legislature could take to create a strong economy and make South Carolina attractive? For job growth. For job growth, okay. Um, I saw an article on the front page of the Greenville News today. Uh, it was not flattering towards the ACT scores uh, in South Carolina, but I thought that the superintendent of education made a good point about uh, some of the other things that our schools are doing, apprenticeship type programs to prepare young people who are not planning to go to college um, for technical oriented jobs and I think in South Carolina that we have got that going pretty well so I think that's one thing uh, that we can continue to do in support in the educational sphere is uh, helping young people who are not intending to go to college find that skill uh, while they're in high school and get some training to prepare them uh, for the kind of jobs that are available uh, with the companies that are moving in. I sat in an office with a businessman not too long ago, and he told me one of these uh, kind of common stories that you might hear about business. Uh, he'd been trying to develop some land and had got all his paperwork in, and the agency he was dealing with had waited to the last possible day to respond to him, and they pointed out something wrong in his paperwork and said, you're going to have to do this. And uh, so he went ahead and complied with their request, and... He went through another complete cycle where they waited to the last possible day where they could uh, say something to him and then they found something else they didn't like. And uh, we're talking now about government bureaucracy and, and unnecessary regulations and paperwork and people who are in business uh, deal with this kind of thing on a regular basis. So uh, I would agree uh, that that is what we would need to be looking at in the legislature, but I also do agree that uh, government does not create jobs, it's a, that's, that's the private sector's uh, field, and uh, we don't want the, governor, the government trying to pick winners and losers in and, and the economy and giving subsidies to some companies, especially big companies, and ignoring small business. Thank you. Well, my first answer to the question that I had first was, really more appropriate for this because I do think that we create a better economy when we have educated children, we have good infrastructure, 
and we all feel safe. But drilling down a little bit on that is it really, uh, industry comes or business comes to a community, they stay in the community when you have a developed workforce. And I echo, uh, I think it was uh, Mr. Tucker who said and brought up about Tri-County Tech, what a gem it is that we have the best technical school system in the entire country. And yes, we, take we need to take advantage of that. The career campus opportunities uh, in Anderson County that will be unrolled, that we, we've already seen the successes from districts one and two, that will be coming to three and three, four and five. But also I think it's a part of a private uh, public partnership in that uh, for several years I've been serving on a board with Duke Energy where we have actually invested over $70 million to help bring uh, and support new industry coming into uh, this area of the Duke footprint. 2014, I was named Economic Development Ambassador of the Year for Anderson County and because I do think that at the bottom where it all starts with an educated workforce, a skilled workforce, we can have more jobs, means more people are at work, less people that need government services, but it isn't about the legislature doing that, it's about our community doing it together. As I've said before, we've been working on a tax reform movement, and we met here several months ago with uh, Rusty Burns and Jason, our county treasurer, and we've, we've, been, we've come to some, some ideas of what we'd like to see happen. We need to cut the, uh, in, the state income tax bracket for businesses as far down as we can possibly cut it. Then we need to reduce the property taxes on the structures that they operate out of. This would make, and we want to do it in such a manner that we make our state the most inviting state of all the states that are out there. We've got this great lake system. We've got the interstate right here, about 38 miles of it in Anderson County. And good infrastructure also sells businesses coming to our area. I, I feel like that the money put in individuals' hands by having businesses come in here will make the free, free market take place. And every dollar that we put back in people's hands that uh, they didn't have before, by the velocity of money, one dollar creates seven. The next thing we need to talk about is our schools. Right now we have 720,799 children that are in our public school system in South Carolina. We spend 11.7 billion each year on those children, which equates to $16,211 per child. Now, if we're going to spend that kind of money, what we need to do is start paying our teachers more. We need to put that money in the classroom, pay our teachers more, like the professionals they are, and let them teach in that classroom. They, they have so many, as I call them, clipboard toters walking in and out of the classrooms that it impairs their ability to teach our students. Now let's get up to talking about tech and dual credit system. We have a dual credit system where you can take college level courses and high school courses and it's paid for with this $16,211 and a person can graduate from tech and have a work, uh-oh, here we go again. <laughs> I guess it's the end of the road on that one. Thank y'all. The next question comes also from the audience. 
Um, there is a long preamble to it, so uh, as it is written here, so I'm not going to read all of that. It deals with the South Carolina State Employees Pension Program. And the question is, it has, it has been reported that the pension system has half the money needed to eventually pay the benefits it owes. How do you think this can best be fixed so that state and local government employees can get the benefits they have been promised? Mr. Bowen, the way begins with you. Well, I'm fully aware of the fact that uh, that, that's underfunded. And one of the things that I think really hurt that system that we had was the Terry program that we had in the past. We had a lot of people that were sitting on the top end drawing full retirement that was going into a, like a little reserve account and they drew their full salaries at the same time. And that plugged up the system of young people starting out at lower salaries coming into our system. We finally, during the time that I was at in the General Assembly stopped the Terry program and is still being currently phased out. That, uh, though we, we definitely need to be able to fund and pay for all the retirement programs that we've promised everybody. That's just, that's just one more of the problems like fixing the roads that we have in the state. And uh, the way we're going to have to do it is we're going to have to go back and see how that money flows into the state house, and then we're going to have to prioritize how we spend that money. It may not be always the same hands that's always got it in the past, but we're going to have to make some hard decisions, and we're going to have to pick the priorities that we feel like are important, and being able to pay our retirement system and the benefits that we've promised people and our teachers that teach in the schools, we have got to do that. And it's going to take some hard-line decisions on who we give our tax dollars to and how we direct it. But I think that if we restructure our whole money going in and money going out, that we can, in time, make that thing back solvent again. Thank you very much. I agree with much of what Mr. Bowen said. We have made commitments. But what a shame that people in our legislature have allowed this to happen. And we don't have any other recourse other than making good on the commitments we've made. I think what's going to happen in the future is that there will be a new way of providing retirement benefits to state employees. I don't think there's any possible way that we can bring about, without some kind of change, the ability to Stay true to the commitments that are out there. It's a, it, it, it's a horrible situation, and it's a lot of money. But I don't think that we have any other recourse, but I do think it will bring about change. Thank you. The estimates on the uh, pension deficit uh, run from 20 to 40 billion dollars. Uh, there have been several uh, things that have contributed to this over a number of years. Uh, one, we have had overly optimistic uh, expectations of return. Uh, forecasts have been made on the basis of a seven and a half percent return. And in the last 10 years, uh, the fund has averaged about four and a half percent return. Uh, there has been some investments uh, and some fees that were probably not wise. Uh, early retirement in the Terry program has contributed 
to this deficit. And uh, because of the calculations that have been used for a number of years, it has been underfunded. Now, we are dealing with something on a state level that the entire nation is going to be dealing with uh, when we're talking about Social Security and how is that going to be fixed. Um, and there's not going to be an easy answer to this. And in the year 2000, there was one state worker for each, uh, I mean, one in retirement for each of the three active workers. So three active workers, one in retirement. Uh, that's basically cut in half. Now there's 1.4 active workers for each person in retirement. So we're looking at some demographic issues here, and it is the same kind of issues that we're looking at on the national level with Social Security because of the baby boom. I think we are going to have to uh, meet our commitments. Uh, what is being proposed is to raise the employee contribution to around 9%. The employer contribution is going to probably get raised closer to 16%, and, that, and, and those who are uh, paying taxes are, are going to be uh, paying for that. And I think on the long term, what we need to look at is a defined benefit plan uh, where people starting out are, are put into a 401k program as, as opposed to this pension program. Thank you. For me, this is one of those where I have to take the deep breath. Um, I've had to tell truth to power before. And I can tell you standing in front of a flag officer and telling them there's a problem with one of the programs is not something the J.O. wants to do, okay? That has a lot of impact on your career if you don't pull it off smartly. This is the same kind of situation, all right? Baby boomers were offered a promise. You were offered a lie. But it's up to us to hold the commitment. Okay, I wish we could hold people responsible who have mismanaged this, but in the government we call fraud business. So my generation, what you'll find unique about Gen X, nobody markets to us because we're small. But we also don't have the expectation of full retirement plans. It's pretty much already been disintegrated in most businesses. Um, people say we hop from job to job. No, we just try to find better employment. And we're very entrepreneurial. So I think our generation can handle it. The good news is that the folks coming up behind us are bigger than the baby boomer generation. So once we get them employed, there's going to be an enormity of new money into that system. The problem is, though, we still have to stop the fake promise. Okay, you can't tell people that rely on it in retirement. You can't tell people that are getting ready to retire in five years that, hey, can't do it. But what you can do is tell the people entering into employment today, those benefits end now. All right, the full benefit plan from state employee pension plan should no longer be applicable to people entering the workforce. We need to stop it now. And that way we don't have this problem again and we can deal with what we have right now. Thank you. Well, I'm getting close to the last time now. <clears throat> the uh, accountability is obviously the biggest issue we had that created the problem that we have before us as far as the pension goes. I don't know where it started. I know that we had a down year with investments so we, we were trying to achieve a good return on the money, uh, playing with the uh, real estate market and the stock markets. Obviously, that, uh, they didn't have a crystal ball. 
So it's put us in a bad situation. I don't know how to get out of this thing. 20 to 40 million, a billion dollars, as Richard said. I mean, that's huge. Uh, I know they're going to reach out to the counties to help offset this. I don't know that you'll ever dig out of it. Um, and I don't have a solution. But I know there's a lot of people out there that we could reach out to that could create a solution. I bet we could start with the universities around here with some of the economic guys. I think they could help us out a lot. So I wish I, tell you, I, wish I could tell you I had one, but I don't. So sorry. Well, uh, there's not much to be said more uh, other than the assumed rate of return is a, is a huge problem. We don't fully know the, the scope of the problem because even under the current bill that's being debated in the Senate right now, they're only reducing the rate of return to 7.25%. Historically, in the stock market, you've seen something a little over 5% return, and that was in one of the uh, ages of expand productivity expansion throughout the 20th century. It's, there's no guarantee we'll get that kind of expansion again. And in fact, if we do, you'll see a Dow up over, based on market value, you'll see a Dow up over 2 million. So what's the likelihood of that? Uh, it's not going to happen, folks. So what we've got to do is we, we do need to stagger the, um, the age of eligibility, and we need to increase the contributions both on the employee side and the employer side. And then we need to stop we need to draw the line on, on, a, on a calendar and say, after this point, you're going to be, uh, those employees will be getting a 401k, essentially, that type of program. Because, y'all, I've practiced a little bit in the ERISA area, the Employment Retirement Income Security Act. That is what governs corporate America's retirement system programs. Anybody that was associated with the state system, if they were in the private sector, they'd be in jail because they have lied to the people they've been administering the money. There was a guy, <laughs> there was a guy riding around Columbia in a yellow Lamborghini on your money if you're a, stat, a state employee several years ago. And you know what? He cashed out and he's working for some private equity firm in Atlanta now. He should be in pinstripes. Now, and here's the other thing we've got to do is we've got to grow our way out of this. There is no way you can take the amount of money that we have in our economy right now and pay our obligations. I don't care who tells you you can. You can engage in wishful thinking. You can say we're going to stagger all this stuff. That's not going to happen if we don't have a growing economy. So we can go back to economic development. We can go back to investing in our people and those kinds of things because we need not just new distributorships. We need organic economic development here. The interest payments that the state pays a year or in the neighborhood of 1.4 billion that we have to come up with to pay because of the money we owe. The first thing we've got to do is cap the liability. The second thing we need to make good and make sure that our state employees are that we honor them and let them know that they're safe. It's going to be painful. But James is right about the growth. I'll have to say that that is we're going to have to grow our way out of it. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. But it's going to be painful, and we're just going to have to ride it out. But with the system as the way it is, once we cap the liability, we will have to develop another system for those employees that are coming onto the state. Thank you. My phone says that it's 7.30.
and that is the bewitching hour for this. Thank you, gentlemen and ladies, and thank you all very much. And it is important that the candidates get out. That primary election is scheduled again April 11th, and a runoff is inevitable. But uh, And I still worry about very low voter turnout as well. Special elections are notorious for being largely ignored, and there's a lot of candidates here. And I think that's also spring break for some of our public schools in this uh, state senate district. So this is a big deal. Uh, this is a state senator. It's, it's an important uh, governmental place, uh, governmental position, and we need to be educating ourselves and finding out who we want to support. We'll have some more interviews with some of the folks running here in the, leading up to the 11th, April 11th, and more te- details next week from the folks at the Voting Registration Office about precincts and other details that will be coming up on the forum here. If you're headed downtown this weekend, uh, it, is be- it looks like it's going to be a beautiful weekend after a, little, a few clouds. Don't forget, the best place anywhere to eat is Sullivan's Metropolitan Grill. And as always, this podcast is made possible by the Sullivan's Metropolitan Grill and Sullivan's Caters, Anderson's finest fine dining establishment for special occasions, dinner, lunch, anything else. Also the best place to get that food if you're catering a special event. You know, Sullivan's has been listed as one of the top 100 restaurants in the United States, one of only two in South Carolina to grab this honor, the other is down in Charleston. And they've been featured many times in Southern Living, numerous culinary magazines, and on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Bill Nickerson and his wife, Sabre, took a chance when they opened Sullivan's in downtown Anderson almost 20 years ago. And we owe them a huge debt of thanks since their risk kind of kicked off the renaissance of downtown Anderson. They also offer that catering at rates more competitive than almost anybody would believe. Uh, Compare them to some of the mom-and-pop catering shops, and they'll give you the same great Sullivan's food at prices less than you'll get from macaroni and cheese from a lot of people. You can visit their Facebook page, Sullivan's Metropolitan Grill, for more information on the restaurant or Sullivan's Caters. If you want to find out more information, Sullivan'sCaters.com or their Facebook page. And you can have that same great food you can get at Sullivan's at your wedding, family reunion, party, or corporate event just by checking Sullivan's Caters. Nobody's giving back more to this community than, than Bill and Sabra, and we appreciate all they do. Speaking of giving back to the community, our animal shelter continues to be a shining light in saving animals and chipping and spay and neutering and educating and doing all kinds of wonderful things. If you haven't been to the Anderson County Animal Shelter lately, you need to get by there sometime soon. Check it out. A lot of changes have been made at the Pets Are Worth Saving site. They call it PAWS, and it's getting better and better. And next week on the Anderson Reserver Podcast, News from People You Trust, I'll be talking to the new veterinarian and interim director, Dr. Kim Sanders, who has almost enough animals at her house to start her own extension shelter. Uh, You'll enjoy that interview. Uh, with her, I did, and you'll find out what a great person she really is and what a great pet, pet person she is. I had that interview scheduled for this week, but decided this week with the long uh, Senate Forum event, I would hold it till next week. And that's it for this week's Anderson Observer Podcast. News from people you trust. Join me again next week, but until then, get out and do something to make Anderson a better place. The heart is a bloom Shoots up through the stony ground There's no room, no space to rent in this town. You're out of luck, and the reason that you had to care, the traffic is stuck, and you're not moving anywhere. You thought you found a friend to take you out of this place, someone. Turn for grace.